So let's turn in the Gospel of John to John chapter 11. Earlier in John 11, we heard Jesus at the tomb of his good friend, Lazarus. Speak to a dead man, Lazarus, come out. Then the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, a cloth around his face, and Jesus said to the, the people gathered there, take off the grave clothes and let him go. We have already in John's gospel heard threats against Jesus' life. But now it becomes an official conspiracy to arrest him in the plot to kill Jesus. Listen as I read in John's gospel. This is John 11. I'm going to read at verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Let's bow in prayer, having heard God's word. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the ministry of Jesus, our Savior, for his power over death as he raised Lazarus from the tomb, his compassion as he comforted the sisters of the dead man, as he gave them the hope of life eternal, declaring himself to be the resurrection and the life. Lord, I pray that as we read your word that we would see that truth on display, that we would hear it announced to us not merely as a, as a historical oddity or an interesting fact, but as hope for us right now. Lord, for those that are listening to your word, read and preached without faith, Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith to trust in Jesus, to believe in the work of our Savior. And so, Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how do you solve the trolley problem? All right, to make theory tangible, 
philosophers like to develop thought experiments. Dr. Philippa Foote wanted her students and her readers to intuitively feel the dilemma in ethical debates. So she asks us to consider a runaway trolley, barreling down the tracks without any brakes to stop it. If it continues down the tracks, there are five bystanders who will be killed by this runaway trolley. But there's a lever that you can pull that will divert the trolley onto another track where only one bystander will be killed. So the choice is do nothing and five people die in the accident. Or pull the lever and only one person has to die. What do you do? Well, this is the trolley problem, as Dr. Foote's theory became known. It initially feels simple. One death or five deaths? That feels pretty straightforward. It's so simple that it floods popular culture. You'll see it on television sitcoms. It's part of the current debate among computer programmers about what do we do with self-driving cars? Run over one person or run over five people? Run over the little person or run over the full-grown person? It's a debate that has, uh, you know, funny consequences on TV and real-life consequences on the road. But it forces some necessary distinctions. I mean, if you do nothing, the accident claims five lives. But it takes a positive action. You have to actually do something. You pull a lever so that one person dies. I mean, intuitively, it feels permissible to save five lives. That, that's the noble thing to do, but it doesn't seem permissible to kill one person in order to save five lives. Now, it's the kind of question that in Philosophy 101 gets students thinking about, is an action right based on what the outcome is, or are our actions inherently right and wrong? Now, the high priest in John 11 he knew nothing of Dr. Foote. He knew nothing of trolleys. But he knows how to calculate his own odds of success. And he asks the same philosophical question. Isn't it better to sacrifice one man so that the whole nation might be saved? The threat of death has been hanging over Jesus as we've read through John's Gospel. His teaching provoked a violent response so that they, they try and arrest Jesus multiple times in John's gospel. In, in chapter 7, chapter 8, in chapter 10, we hear them say they attempted to seize Jesus, but he got away from them. Or he left as they were conspiring. We've already heard in the gospel that, that his miracles, proving his power, they, they provoke a response where people say, well, that's, that's enough of this. And they pick up rocks in order to, to kill Jesus on the spot. There's no need for a trial. He's blasphemed. And so we've, we've had the threat being ratcheted up in John's gospel. And in John 11, we have the, the pinnacle of Jesus' miracles here in the gospel of John. He stood at a tomb where a man had been de dead four days so that everyone gathered says, no, no, don't even move the stone. The stench will be unbearable. You, you, you can't. There's nothing that can be done. He's dead. And Jesus says, Lazarus come out. He brings a dead man back to life. And this is what provokes then a response, because the power of the Jewish religious leaders is now under threat. 
And so the, the Pharisees and the, the leaders of God's people gather together with the chief priests for a meeting of the Sanhedrin, a gathering of the, the official religious leadership in Jerusalem. Now they, when they, when they gather, we realize they, they make a concession right at the beginning. Look, look back at verse 47. Is this meeting of religious leaders, of, of scholars, of theologians and philosophers is here to make a political decision about what to do about Jesus. They make a concession right at the beginning. Look at verse 47. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. They concede that what Jesus is doing is miraculous. They, they're willing to admit, we can't figure out how he does it. How do you make a man who has been blind since birth see? How do you make a dead man walk out of a tomb so that the crowds that have been gathered believe that he was dead and is now alive? They concede that, that Jesus has performed miraculous signs. And then in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Well, remember, that's John's point in writing the gospel. That everyone who hears about the miracles of Jesus, who hears the testimony of the eyewitnesses, will believe. And they're afraid it's going to work. If Jesus keeps performing miracles, if these miraculous signs keep pointing to his power and authority, everyone's going to end up believing. And, and actually, that was the purpose for which Jesus stood in front of Lazarus's tomb. If you look back at, at verse 42... Jesus said, in praying to God before he calls Lazarus out, in verse 42 of, of John 11, I, know, I knew that you always hear me, speaking to the Father, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So he tells us, what is the sign? The miracle points to the fact that Jesus is the resurrection of life and the life. The miracle is meant that people would respond and believe, and the religious leaders realize, uh-oh, it's working. God sent his son to earth to perform miraculous signs to prove that he was God's son here on earth, and people are believing in Jesus. If we let this go on, everyone is going to believe in him. Now, now, I think here is where our strategy to defeat Jesus would have differed from the Sanhedrin, because we wouldn't have made this first concession. We would have said, miracle, shmiracle. I don't believe in any miracles. There's no such thing as miracles. I mean, you know that. I know that. We're smart people. We don't live in the, the backwaters of the first century. We're intelligent people. We've sent a man to the moon. We sent probes out into space. I have a computer that I carry around in my pocket. I'm not dumb enough to believe that a guy can stand in front of a dead man and make him alive again. Miracles don't happen. See, that's how we would defeat it. The problem is that kind of strategy doesn't work in the face of actual miracles. Because that's a philosophical argument. Miracles don't exist because miracles don't exist. That miracle couldn't have happened because no miracle could ever happen. Well, tell that to the crowd who was there for the funeral, to the family members who wrapped the body of Lazarus in linen cloths and put him in a tomb and then saw him four days later walk out alive. See, a philosophical argument against miracles, we're, we're really, it's not really an argument at all. It's just a definition. 
Miracles, by definition, don't exist, therefore that miracle doesn't exist. That's not a real argument. That, that's a commitment, a prior commitment to a world in which there can be no interaction with God, therefore there's no miracles. But that's actually a, a pretty narrow-minded way to get through life. I'll only believe what I see with my own eyes, what I could test in a laboratory, what a scientist would defend to me. No, in lots of ways, that's a naive. That modern assumption is more foolish than the one the ancients took, which was if numerous eyewitnesses see these miracles, and these miracles then get repeated. Lazarus is not the only man whom Jesus raised from the dead. This isn't the only time this miracle has been happening. This isn't the only miracle of this sort. These miracles have been multiplied so that the, the witnesses to them are thousands. And then these eyewitnesses, as you see in John's gospel, are willing to risk everything. Because it's not only Jesus' life who, in John's gospel, will be under threat, but, but even Lazarus. We gotta get rid of him so we can stop going around telling people he was dead and is now alive. That's bad for our business. Let's get rid of Lazarus too. See, these eyewitnesses are willing to risk everything because they've seen the truth. They understand who Jesus is. And this is a danger for the Sanhedrin. If everyone believes in Jesus, well, then you know what's gonna happen. Well, well they run the scenario for us. In verse 48, they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They realize that the, the interweaving of politics and religion, which is true in parts of the world today, but has definitely been true through most of, of the ancient, uh, of most of, of history, that, that if they make these kind of religious claims, if they let a man go around saying he is the Messiah, the king, well, Rome is not going to be real happy because there's a guy in Rome who thinks he's the supreme king. A guy in Rome who thinks, well, he's even better than a king. He's a god on earth who should have power over the entire world. And so they won't let a little king gain a following in Jerusalem. They'll come and they'll destroy this king. And so with the power of the Sanhedrin threatened, we, we then see Caiaphas's calculation that one man should die for the people. It's a political calculation. We get rid of Jesus and we get rid of the threat. If Jesus is gone, then people will stop chanting his name. They'll stop going to find him. They'll stop looking for miracles. And then there will be no more threat from Rome. Because there have been other religious leaders that have come and gone. Later in the book of Acts, another gathering of, of religious leaders against the miracles of the apostles will say, yeah, I mean, remember Thutis? Remember Judas from Galilee? When they came and they raised up armies, but, but once they were dead, their followers were scattered. Nothing came of it. So Caiaphas is making a calculation here. He's, he appeals to the, the self-interest of the Sanhedrin. Think about what you will lose if we don't get rid of this one man. Because on first reading, it might seem that they're, they're really thinking about the nation as a whole. They're thinking about the people. They're thinking about our place, Jerusalem, the temple. 
that, that we need the temple to stand so that we can remain in right relationship with God. We can bring sacrifice to God. It, it almost sounds noble, but, but notice what they actually say in verse 48. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're not really all that worried about the nation. I mean, we'll sacrifice the people at the bottom end. Like, let them go. Rome can come and kill a bunch of them as long as I don't lose my place on the Sanhedrin, as long as I don't lose my seat at the banquet table, as, as long as I don't lose, lose access to the, to the governor, as long as I don't lose what is mine. See, their concern is for their own loss of power. And so that's what Caiaphas is appealing to. It's better, verse 50, for you let one man die for the nation. Not better for the people. Not better for our city. Not better for our access to God, our relationship with God. It's better for you. You'll keep your power. Now, we too fear the loss of power. And actually, I think we'd go farther than Caiaphas. We don't, we don't worry about risking one person I actually only, most of the time, care about one person. See, I'll flip the equation around. I'll sacrifice everybody for me. The rich in our community, among whom I think we must count ourselves, willing to risk and sacrifice the poor, I mean, it's their fault, after all, that they don't have more. The ethnic majority willing to sacrifice ethnic minorities. It's time for them to stop complaining so I can get on with my life. Leaders willing to sacrifice followers. I'll tolerate you as long as I get what I want. See, I think we're, we'd be willing not only to risk one man for ourselves, we'd most of the time risk just about everyone else so that I get what I want. Because the only way to give up power is when you see how destructive it is in your hands. The power will consume you. These religious leaders are so afraid of using their power that what are they sitting around doing? They're conspiring to murder a man so that they don't lose power. They have the power to kill this man, and so that's what they're going to do. The loss of power will lead you to wield your power against others. But Jesus will not use his power to gain an earthly kingdom. We've seen it in the gospel as the people come to make him king by force, come so that he can lead them at, at the head of the army. They will, they will seat him on the throne, and he says no. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to use his power to go to the cross. Not to defeat others, not to kill others, but to let himself be killed. Jesus submits himself to death so that we can gain 
eternal life. See, Caiaphas didn't even understand what he was claiming when he makes this exchange. One man for the nation. I mean, all throughout John's gospel, he's given us these, these statements filled with irony where the speaker doesn't realize the, the depth of the truth of what's being said. When the, the religious leaders worry that everyone is going to believe in Jesus, well, that's, that's the reason Jesus came. But here, so that we don't miss it, so that we don't miss it, John says, oh, yeah, Caiaphas didn't say this on his own. Look at verse 51. He didn't, he didn't make this merely as a, as a statement. He prophesied as the high priest. God put into the mouth of the, 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 peak, the man at the top of the peak of the religious structure, the one who on the day of atonement could walk into the Holy of Holies. He has that man say in front of all of the religious leaders, this is, the, this is what we need. We need one man who is willing to give his life for the sake of of the nation. Now for Caiaphas, it's an entirely political calculation. He wants to keep Rome at a distance so he can hold on to his own power. But God intends it to mean so much more, so that John tells us this was a prophecy. Caiaphas is unintentionally speaking the very truth of God. God would send one man to die for the nation. Caiaphas speaks with motivations of power, but he uses sacrificial language. Let's sacrifice this one in the place of the nation. Because that was his role as high priest, to bring the sacrifices on behalf of God's people, to put a a lamb in the place of, of a nation. To, to, to put the guilt of God's people on the scapegoat and, and then, and then set, it, set it free so that God's, the sin would be taken away from God's people. And so now, as the high priest that year, he stands before the religious leaders and says, this is God's purpose. Oh, no, he doesn't realize that's what he's saying. I mean, this is a, a backroom kind of negotiation. It's not really an official gathering of the Sanhedrin. It's just that they've gotten worried. People have brought reports, and so, so let's get together and solve this problem. There are no witnesses called. There's no formal trial. They just conspire against Jesus. That's his purpose. Let's get rid of him so that we can keep our power. And yet what John intends us to hear, because it's what God intends us to hear, is that Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but God is telling us it is better for you that one man die then the whole nation perish. See, this is the very language that Scripture gives us to describe Jesus' purpose in coming. He came as the substitute who would die in our place. Think of the words of, of prophecy from, from the book of Isaiah, a prophet who knew he was speaking God's words. Not an unintentional prophet like Caiaphas, but one who had been called by God and sent by God. In Isaiah 53, we read the truth that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God took our sins and placed them on Christ. 
Or think of the way the New Testament describes the ministry of Jesus. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus, the perfectly righteous Son of God, died on the cross. He became sin for us. Paul continues, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or the words of Peter, which we've already heard in in today's service from 1 Peter 2, that Jesus committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, Caiaphas adds his voice to the witness of the scriptures. The apostle John will say later when he he writes to the churches in 1 John that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the one in our place who dies for us to pay the full price for our sins. And John continues, and not only for our sins, speaking to his little church, but for the sins of the whole world, for everyone. This is how God showed his love among us. John will continue. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, Caiaphas tells us the truth. He gives us the purpose of Jesus' ministry, that one man would die for the nation. And then John makes sure that, that we don't get caught thinking only of the Jewish nation, only of people physically descended, biologically descended from Abraham. In, in verse, verses 51 and 52, he explains that, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, verse 52, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. That, that's the language that Jesus had been using in, in chapter 10, that he had sheep that had been scattered, that he was going to gather into one flock. Now the image captures what we saw back in John 1, that we are the children of God. Not, not merely the sheep of his flock, but, but his family. And so God will gather for himself his scattered children, those who believe in him and receive the gift of eternal life. See, this is the hope that we have. In a Savior who uses his power not merely to, to build his own kingdom on earth, but gives, it, gives his power away. Let's himself be led to the cross. Let, let's everything be taken from him. I mean, Jesus has been able to escape their grasp throughout John's gospel. Whether simply by slipping away through the crowds or miraculously, with a mob coming at him, can, can escape the city. They can't seize him. See, Jesus doesn't fall to, he, he's, he's not led to his death because of the work of the Sanhedrin, because of their decisions. No, as one commentator says, there is no human court that could force Jesus to the cross. Remember, he tells his disciples he has legions of angels at his disposal, and he doesn't even need angels. He's the creator of the universe. You exist only because he upholds you by his own power. But he willingly goes to the cross. 
See, they decide that they must take his life. Verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They give orders to anyone who, who is in Jerusalem for the feast because they assume Jesus will be back. He's been here for the last several of the feasts. Of course, he'll be back for this next feast. And so they give orders that if anyone finds out where Jesus is, it has to be reported. They will seize him and they will kill him. Jesus, God's son, is willing to die in your place. The trolley problem, it's just a thought experiment. Thankfully, no matter how many times you run the simulation, no one actually gets run over by a trolley. And, and remember, it's a problem because there's no solution in which people don't get run over by a trolley. But that's the way philosophers and psychologists like to work. They want you to feel how awful the scenario is. But you and I face a much bigger problem, not merely a thought experiment. Our sin problem is the reality that we face. And Jesus doesn't just pull a lever to minimize death. He chooses to place himself in the path of danger. He puts himself in the path of death. It is better for you that one man die for the people. See, Caiaphas meant that selfishly. It's better for you. You can hold on to what you have. You can keep your power, your position, your prestige. But do you hear what John is saying to us? What Caiaphas is saying to us, it's better for you that one man die. Do you believe that that's true for you? That God sent his son to give his life. The savior of the world gave his life for you. Let me pray as we come to the table of the Lord. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the clarity of your word that you speak even through, through those that are sinning against you. In the midst of a conspiracy to put to, get, put to death Jesus the Savior, you have the high priest speak words of gospel truth that we might hear your love for us. Lord, I pray for those who have heard your word and now will observe at the table your grace for us, but yet they don't believe. Or maybe they believe that it's true for the people sitting around them, but not true for themselves. Lord, give us the faith to believe. Lord, where we have been tempted to hold on to our power too tightly, to cling to our own positions and prestige, Lord, at the table of Jesus, let us see his sacrifice, his love on display for us. So, Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus, the King who died for us. Amen.